Hello, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. You can listen and subscribe to the show for free on Spotify, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. For network or show information, visit BiteRadio.me. And now, the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Okay, everyone. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Today, my special guest is Julie Lifcott-Haynes, and we'll be talking about her new book, Your Turn, How to Be an Adult. What does it mean to be an adult? In the 20th century, psychologists came up with five markers of adulthood. Finish your education, get a job, leave home, marry, and have children. Since then, every generation has been held to those same markers. Yet, so much has changed about the world and living in it since that sequence was formulated. All of those markers are choices, and they're all valid, but any one person's choices along those lines do not make them more or less an adult. Being an adult, it turns out, is not about any particular checklist. It is instead a process, one that you can get progressively better at over time, becoming more comfortable with uncertainty and gaining the know-how to keep going. Julie Lifcott-Haynes believes in humans and is deeply interested in what gets in our way. Her work encompasses writing, speaking, teaching, mentoring, and activism. Julie holds degrees from Stanford, Harvard Law, and the California College of the Arts. For more information, you can visit Julie's website, which is julieliscotthames.com, and that's J-U-L-I-E-L-Y-T-H-C-O-T-T-H-A-I-M-S.com, or you can just go to Amazon and type in your turn um, and... Julie, and it'll, it'll come right up there for you to, to be able to reference that. So, Julie, thank you for joining me today. Robert, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be with you. It's my pleasure. And, and I, I have to admit, when I was reading your book, um, you cut to the chase. <laughs> you call it like it is, and, and you don't hold back. And I just think that's great. <laughs> So, oh, I'm so glad. That's I, my personality for sure. Um, but I also think, look, this isn't a storybook life we're talking about. It's the real life of the reader. I have a lot of empathy and compassion for each one of us in the struggles we face, insecurities, the doubts. So I kind of felt like cutting to the chase and it's a little bit of blunt talk um, was kind of the right way to go with the voice of the book. It was, it was very much, and, and I enjoyed it. You know, I mean, it just, um, you know, sometimes authors try and coax things, you know, and put things in the you know, best possible way. Uh, but, but uh, you know, the one thing I find about that, though, is, is that the reader can sense that it's not authentic, you know, and, and um, I think that's important when you're talking about um, becoming an adult. So. 
Let's start. Um, as I mentioned in the introduction, you know, there was that uh, the idea of what an adult was, you know, was based on um, markers, you know, decades ago. Um, so can you tell us, you know, how that um, that particular, those, those particular characteristics, how, how they've changed over the years, um, and, and has a, the idea of adult changed over the years? Yes, yeah, certainly. So you mentioned them, but I'll just briefly rattle them off. The five markers of adulthood traditionally are finish school, get a job, leave home, marry, and have kids. And I don't know about you, but when I hear that, I I sort of picture the 1950s. Um, things have changed so much. Uh, we are no longer requiring humans to do these five things in that order to be valid adults. Uh, uh, you don't have to marry to have kids anymore. You don't have to have kids if you marry. Those things are not necessarily connected anymore. Um, do you have to leave home? Can you leave home? It may be infeasible in terms of your economic situation to leave your parents' home, particularly if you've grown up in a very expensive part of the world, as is the case where I live here in Silicon Valley. It's not as much about leaving home necessarily as are you behaving as an adult wherever you live. Maybe you're in your 20s and still living with your folks. Hopefully you're contributing with your sweat equity, with your dollars, um, with your attitude. Hopefully you're behaving as a co-equal adult even though you're still living with your parents. And also finish school. Man, is that an outdated concept. For Gen Z, likely to live to 100, why finish school at 18 or 22? We ought to be going back to school to retool for lifelong education, to just develop further. You know, there's no longer the sense that school is something you, you're done with um, fairly young in your life. I think the one thing that does hold, Robert, is get a job. Um, Everybody does need to figure out how to support themselves, but there's so much more flexibility. You know, my, my grandparents had one employer their entire lives. Today's young adults are likely to have many, many different, not just employers, but careers, because everything is changing so quickly. They need to be more nimble. It's not about find that job and stay in it from 22 to 65, then retire with a pension. Those days are gone. They have to be much more attuned to developing the skills and habits to progress um, in their careers, but looking around and thinking, okay, what's the next right place for me uh, without, you know, the presumption that, hey, this employer and I are going to commit to each other for 60 years, those days are gone. Oh, yeah, very much so. And the idea of getting the job is changed too. I mean, the idea of gaming, being a professional gamer, you know, that can earn you – Lots of money. I mean, that's, you know, this just drives me crazy. But, but it just goes to point out that, you know, even the definition of what a job is has changed. Yeah, gamers can make really good money, and it's an entirely new field, and it might drive you crazy because it doesn't seem, I don't know, serious. But, you know, back, I'm remembering now the movie The Graduate with Dustin Hoffman. And the joke in that movie, now we look back, it's like plastics. Everybody was telling young people to go into plastics because that was, you know, the new industry in the 1960s. And, you know, it, it was what everybody was saying was right, and yet now we can see, like, wow, plastics, okay, highly problematic in some ways. You know, we have an imperfect set of information about 
the right industry. And so I'm, I'm less concerned about does this make any sense to me as a 54-year-old that, you know, my nephew is designing video games in the United Kingdom, and he's really good at it. And I might not understand it, but it earns him a living, and there are a lot of consumers for that product. So who am I to say that's not a legitimate pursuit? Oh, exactly, exactly. Now, one of the things that you, you've worked with kids, correct? I mean, in, in your background um, as a, uh, as college a teacher? Students. College students. Yeah, I college. was being a freshman oh. at Stanford University, yeah. Okay. Now, um, I understand you've come, obviously you've encountered uh, hundreds of the 20-somethings and the 30-somethings, and um, in your book you indicated that um, – a lot of those folks feel that they're just playing the part of an adult, yet struggling with anxiety and stress and, and general unease. So can you tell us, tell us a little bit about that mind frame of the idea of just playing an adult, you know, and not really feeling or being an adult? The first thing I would say to a young person who says, I just feel like I'm playing the part, I would say that's exactly what adulting feels like in the early decades of it because we have this impression that to be an adult is to know how to do everything, know how to solve every problem, know how to handle every situation. But the more we encounter those circumstances and we realize there is no playbook, it's on me to try to figure it out, try to devise a solution, bounce back if I kind of got knocked down, the more we have those experiences, the more competent we get, but also the more humble we get, we realize, hey, adulting is just being able to comport myself somehow and react to what comes and keep going. And so playing the part of the adult is actually being the adult. And, you know, the notion of fake it till you make it is really important psychologically. One way to prepare ourselves for a role we don't feel we quite have nailed is to pretend we've nailed it, is to go out there like, well, if I was more confident, I would do this. You know, if I wasn't so afraid, I would do this. Those very actions turn out to be kind of laying the groundwork to that person being that more capable self that they long to be. Yeah. Yeah, and you use the term adulting um, as obviously as a verb. Um, I mean, is that, um, that uh, is there a generation um, term for playing and playing adult? You know, it was the millennials. Yeah, Robert, it was the millennials who first began saying now, maybe twenty years ago, I don't know how to adult. I don't want to adult. Adulting is scary. And they were the first to turn the noun adult into a verb. And it caused a bit of a ruffle. They were called snowflakes or or uh, teacups or orchids, too fragile, not strong. And I had a lot of empathy for them because I was working with millennials as a college dean. And my feeling is if an entire generation or a huge percentage of a generation is articulating fear, about entering a stage of life you and I gleefully enter. I'm an adult, thank goodness. I can't tell me what to do anymore. I'm on my own, you know. If a generation is fearsome at that gate, that's not their fault. Something changed in the way they were raised, in the way they were educated, such that they're feeling fear and self-doubt instead of excitement and enthusiasm at finally having all of this independence and freedom. So this 
book is very much speaking to those folks who might be in their late 30s by now. It's, you know, it's speaking to those in their younger 30s and in their 20s and even their late teens. Anybody who's like, you know what, this looks hard. I'm here to say, like, yeah, to no longer be held on a leash by your parents who may have made every decision, always been there to watch, always handled your forms and your to-do list, always talked to your teacher or your coach for you, all of that might have led you to this place of, I don't know how to do any of this myself, and I'm here not blaming them, but saying, that's valid. What are we going to do about it? We're going to tell you about the things that matter. That's what your turn does. Look, it's like, here's how to hustle at work. Here's how to pay attention to your money. Here's how to pay attention to your mental health. Here's how to pay attention to um, developing your human relationships. Here's case in point what's changed for millennials and Gen Z. Their very play with other people their age has been managed by adults. We have parents telling kids how to play, what to play with. We have parents intervening when they're not getting along. We're so worried about their unhappy feelings. We're kind of smoothing it over. We have deprived an entire generation and a half of knowing how to communicate when there's um, tension, cooperate, compromise. And so they become young adults who maybe are afraid of interacting, you know, with roommates when there's a couple in the house or talking with their professors about a difficult aspect of the course or talking with a store clerk or somebody in their workplace. They've not had as much practice as prior generations at interacting with what we might call strangers because their childhood was very protective in that sense. Well, they've got to really learn how to level up in that department. And, again, I don't blame them. I'm just trying to help them. And, you know, I mean, we all are a product of our environment and, and the time that we grew in, grew up in and, um, the, you know, our, our beliefs, you know, change as, as we grow and, and learn more. Um, now, one of the things, um, one of the concepts in your book you talk about is the idea of a lockstep plan. And um, I'll start before you say that is – one of the things that I enjoyed is you indicated that when it comes to, quote, the right track, that that concept is bullshit. <laughs> so um, tell us about, you know, the idea of, you know, uh, the idea of the, the right track being a bunch of crap. And, and then the lockstep plan and kind of how do they, um, inter, you know, interplay with each other. Yeah, so I like the fact that we could swear on your podcast. Um, the right yeah. track is bullshit. And when you have a set of kids like Gen Zs and Millennials who who are raised in many communities that you have to, in, in K-12 through education, you have to take this class of math in order to get into the right math track, in order to get into the right math. This is all air quotes, right, right, right. You know, childhood may have felt like it came with a lockstep plan. Other people told you, this year do this, so that next year you can do that, so that in four years someone will admit you to do this, and then you'll do that. And so they got really good at looking for the cues and clues from the grown-ups or the, taking the outright advice from grown-ups about do this, do that. And I'm here to say, first of all, that may have really harmed a person. It may have, may have made them perfectionistic, it may have made them very fearful, you know, I'm not adhering to the lockstep plan in the right way, do I still matter, am I good human? 
I'm here with tremendous compassion. Like, whatever childhood told you about lockstep plans is no longer applicable. Adulthood is what I call a wide-open landscape of infinite possibility, which is daunting, yes, because if you're accustomed to a lockstep plan, you're like, where's the right path through this adulthood? I'm here saying forget lockstep, forget path. You're not scouting for the right path. There is no sign that's going to point to the right path. Really, the only signs come from within your own body as you enter a workplace, a workspace, and you start to level up. You hustle. You work hard. You learn to take the initiative. You're paying attention. Do I like this? Do I seem to be good at it? You're looking for signs from within yourself as to, hey, is this a job that I might want to make my career? Great. Let me work harder. Let me look for more opportunity. Am I really hating it? Why is that? Is it something I can change or fix, or is it part of inherently part of the thing? Maybe it's time for me to look elsewhere. So the, the, the cues, the answers to whether this is right come from the individual, not from society. Although society will be there with its opinions, I'm here saying shut off the noise in your head from your parents, your extended family, your peers, the media, telling you what your air quotes supposed to do, and instead interrogate the self. What am I good at? What do I love? Look for the Venn diagram intersection of those things and seek work where that intersection exists. Yeah, yeah that, that's good. a very good point. And, you know, the, the idea of um, the, the right path and that kind of thing, I had, um, a, I wrote a book called um, Spirituality bites. Always in the secret. Spirituality bites. <laughs> you know, with information from bite rituals. Um, but but one, one of those was the, the idea of you know people always saying they're kind of um, searching for that spiritual path. You know, and you know and it can be actually you know broadened you know to anybody kind of searching for their path, and it was like, you know, stop searching, you're on it, you're doing it, you know, and are you doing it the way you want to, though, that's the question, you know, um, so, you know, I've always found it interesting when people say that they're looking for, you know, a path, you know, I mean, you know, it's kind of like it's, the idea is that it's already laid out, and you just kind of have to kind of look around, and see it. but in fact, a lot of times it's forging the path <laughs> that you want. Right. That's exactly right. Robert, I completely agree with you. Yeah. So now when when we're, we're talking about um you know the the parenting that, that we've had over the recent few decades and and how um you know it, it failed you know our youth in many ways as far as providing the tools to, to navigate life's challenges. Um, what can you uh, say um, about um, failing? You know, the, you know, you mentioned kind of like, you know, we got that, that generation that always got the participation, you know, trophy or, um, but, you know, rather than the idea of them not winning or succeeding, you know, in, in a sense. Yeah. So yeah. can, can you tell us about the idea of failing, and, and yeah. kind of how that can hurt us in a way. Yeah. Well, it certainly does feel like a paradox. Anytime somebody says, oh, failure is good for you, you're like, really? It doesn't feel so good. And, of course, that's because we live in a culture that prioritizes outcomes rather than effort. 
So if your outcome is great, then people are delighted, and if it's not great, then they're disappointed. But what really matters, the metrics we really should be measuring ourselves by, is not the outcome, but, you know, what what effort did you put into it? This is partly I'm alluding to Carol Dweck's growth mindset when I'm talking about the importance of focusing on and praising effort. Effort is something each one of us has a whole lot of control over. How hard did I work? How how much uh, did I put into planning for whatever it is? You know, how uh, prepared was I? Um, these are all things that we have control over largely. And then when the outcome happens, if it wasn't quite as stellar as we had hoped, we can come back and say, all right, what did I do uh, first time around? And what might I want to tweak or completely retool when I try it next time? Um, that's the metric that uh, that matters most. It's your ability to learn and grow constantly in this adult life as well as in childhood that really is going to be the ultimate measure of you as a human. That, your, your effort-making and your character, which is how you treat other humans, those are the things that really matter most. They're going to determine your outcomes in the workplace, in your relationships. They're going to determine... Um, whether you end up living in long and healthy and fruitful life, if you're a perfectionist, you get wrapped up in this fear that I'm only good if the last thing I did was good in other people's eyes. You can see that it leaves us terrified because no matter how hard we work, if they didn't think it was perfect, if we didn't win the trophy, we feel inadequate. And uh, who wants to live their life that way? I mean, perfectionism makes you – it's like being mean to yourself and it also makes you kind of a jerk to be around because you're so needing to control everything in order to try to get to that place of perfection. So that's why I'm trying to turn perfectionism on its head with, I think it's chapter three of your turn. It's like, you're not perfect. You're here to learn and grow. Let's lean into that. It's a lot more of a relaxed um, place to be, which is not, it's not knocking hard work. It's saying, yeah, work damn hard and accept things will not always go your way. And that's fine. You know, just lean into your ability to learn and grow every time and you'll be okay. Yeah, yeah, that, that's important. And, you know, that's, that's uh, just the example of, you know, that it could be applied, you know, as you're growing up. I mean, as you're growing up, parents can provide the same opportunity for their children to um, learn and express those behaviors. You know, before you know, before they have adult decisions to make, um, they can get that practice. Right. And, you yeah. know, this is where my first book, actually, How to Raise an Adult, is really just at how um, parents who, with the best of intentions, basically um, end up pre-chewing their kids' food too long. You know, I was uh, on a podcast recently with a woman named um, – uh, Lisa Cypress came in. She's got a podcast, Harvesting Happiness, and she said it's like we're pre-chewing our kids' food. Um, and I, I chuckled. I said, yeah, that's exactly it. We think it helps. Like, of course, they need to pre-chew their food. That's the only way they're going to be able to get it down and be nourished. Well, what's your long-term plan there, parent? You can't pre-chew the food of an adult child. It's, uh, it's gross and absurd. And so we've got to let them learn to chew their own food. And be there off to the side to make sure they don't choke, you know, when they're young and they don't quite know how to cut the food into the right bite-sized chunks. All of these skills have to be taught through patience and through trial and, and error 
You know, that's how our kids learn everything, from wiping their own behinds to cutting their own food to being able to use, to being able to cross the street and take public transportation. You know, and one day maybe parent somebody else. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, we're going to be taking a, a break in a, a few moments, and I do want to invite listeners, if you have any questions you'd like to ask uh, Julie, feel free to call in uh, at 619-789-4359. Um, and those listening live in the chat room, if you have any questions, feel free to post them there. Um, one of the things that kids in today's environment um, with a lot of, you know, danger folks out there and, and uh, um, their ability to, to connect you know, online with <laughs> dubious characters. You know, we, we have that stranger danger uh, alert, you know, that we, we give kids. Now, tell us your perspective of that. Yeah, um, a lot of perspectives here, Robert. First of all, stranger danger is an overbroad concept that has good intentions, but is results in kids not knowing really how to interact with people outside of their family and friends. So, of course, we want to keep our kids safe out there in the world, but we've let this fear that a stranger might harm a child um, prevent us from teaching our child how to use good judgment out there. A, a better A better rule would be, you know, learn which strangers are dangerous as opposed to the mm-hmm. implication that all strangers are dangerous. Um, so because kids leave our homes and then their entire world is full of strangers. Look, online is, is a different is a different landscape. Um, we've got to um, have a very um, loving, open manner of communicating with our kids. Uh, we've got to be developing both unconditional love in the home, that's got to be there, and trust. These are probably the two most important foundational elements we need to have in the home. If our kids know they're loved unconditionally, and if we've developed trust both ways, then we can say to them, you know, I want you to be careful online. I don't want you to be interacting with somebody you don't know the minute anybody's asking to meet you or asking you to do things that might make you uncomfortable, please come to me, consult with me, right? It's communication and trust that allows the kids um, the room to explore things, but then come to parents and say, hey, this is giving me a weird vibe, um, rather than to be afraid of how we might react um, or to be trying to rebel against us because, you know, they don't, you know, they don't feel trusted by us. Um, so these are the habits we can create at home that make it more likely that if and when a child does encounter something dangerous in the form of a stranger online, that we're more likely to know about it, they're more likely to talk with us about it. Um, yeah. Yeah, very much. Well, we're, we're going to go ahead and take that uh, quick break, Julie. Um, and then when, when we return, I want to talk about um, sending and what, what sending is, okay? Yes, sir. Okay, everyone, stay tuned. We'll be right back after this very brief break. Hello, this is Robert Sharp. I want to thank you for joining us, and I hope that you are enjoying today's show. Just a reminder that we have a wealth of information and resources available on our website, byteradio.me. 
there is a calendar of upcoming shows, along with an archive link that will give you access to more than 1,600 shows that we have had during the past 12 years. Also on the site is a link to the products and services we provide, books, nature photography, calendars, and 5x7 photo greeting cards. Our show is a free podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and TuneIn. And you can subscribe for free on any of those platforms by using the links on our website homepage. We are on social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, etc. And we also have buttons to those platforms on the top of our homepage. Our website, ByteRadio.me, has much for you to explore and enjoy. I also very much appreciate you supporting our guests, and especially today's guest. And now, back to the show. Okay, everyone, thank you for staying with us again today. My special guest is Julie Lipscott-Haines, and we're talking about her new book, Your Turn, How to Be an Adult. Um, again, you can find out more about this book and all of the other services that Julie has to offer by visiting her website, which is www.julielipscotthaines.com. That's Julie, L-I-T-H. C-O-T-T-H-A-I-N-S dot com. Okay, with that, we're back, Julie. Yeah, I'm back. I'm excited. <laughs> good, good. Now, I just want to mention um, that you, um, at the back of your book, uh, you have what's called a study guide. So I, I would like for you to tell the listeners about that, because, I mean, it makes your book more than a book. They can apply what they've learned. I really appreciate it. Um, look, Robert, just, I, I told you that I was a college dean once upon a time where I would sit in my office and uh, or go out across campus and meet with students. And this book is me trying to take the kindness and compassion, um, the good um, questions that I might have for students or young people more broadly, and what I might be able to do in person, I try to put that in a book, which, of course, is challenging. And the study guide is one way I've tried to achieve that. So in the hardcover at the back of the book, we learned, though, when we put together the paperback, like, hey, let's put those study guide questions at the end of each chapter. So every chapter now concludes with four concrete questions. And I'll give you just a couple examples. The chapter on perfectionism, you and I were just talking about that. It's called Chapter 3, You're Not Perfect, You're Here to Learn and Grow. Question 1, what is my relationship with perfectionism? What do I feel the need to prove to others? What am I afraid of? What do I feel the need to control? Um, question two, how do I feel when life's beautiful F words, failing, falling, faltering, feedback, floundering, fumbling, happen to me? Um, number three, when have I taken a learner's mentality and readily focused on my growth? How did it feel? Point to a lesson learned or a strength gained after messing something up. So those are just some examples. I'm inviting the reader to be very introspective to take what they've read and really ingest it into their mind and their spirit and their heart and really do the work, that's how they're really going to learn something from this book. Not by just reading something I said, but but by actually pondering it within themselves, and that's what the study guide is meant to prompt. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, you know, because um, the, the, the readers, someone who is drawn to the book, 
is going to be um, naturally inclined to wonder about, you know, how can I be an adult or be a better adult, you know, um, and so, I mean, they're going to be open to that. So, I mean, and I'm, I'm, I'm the kind who I like to apply what I've read, uh, but sometimes it's hard for me to be able to translate, like, what would that look like in my life? So, I, your questions at the end of each chapter are perfect because those are the, the spark, you know, of thought that, that maybe, you know, someone would take, you know, their own way but at least it would give them a point to start um, from home. So that's great. Yeah, I'm, I'm um, glad it resonated with you. Let me, if I may just say, um, I really mm-hmm. think it's, it's a feature of the book, and I'm glad you, you hit upon it. The final set of questions in Chapter 13, which is called Above All Else, Keep Going, which is a major theme of the book, just get back up and keep going. The first question there is, You've learned a lot about yourself while reading this book. Ask yourself, with whom do I feel safe talking about this stuff? With whom am I afraid to discuss this stuff and why? Understanding the people in your life who may kind of be in the way of your beginning to express yourself in the way you want to as an adult, that's an important theme of the book, which is why the final chapter really prompts that introspection. Yeah, it's interesting. I ha- I have a um, in, live in a neighborhood and have a, a new friend who's a who's 32, and he today you know mentioned to me that he had this interaction with someone and made him feel really crappy, and I mean just what I'm not about you know how this friend had done him wrong and he had helped her many times, so. And he just wanted to he said, curl up and cry. Go to bed and curl up and cry. I'm like, dude, <laughs> you know, that's gonna, that's gonna happen, you know, but, but to me, it was, it was, um, a perfect example of what you talked about, about, you know, a lot of the 20, 30 something year old, um, not really having the skills to be able to cope with something. You know, and that's a, I mean, that's a, to me, that, a, um, I know if it's his first time that it's happened that it can be heartbreaking, but it won't be the last, you know. And uh, curling up and crying is no effect. Well, it's important. It's an important part of, like, when we get hurt or, you know, we feel really badly at the hands of other people, there's, there's a place for curl up and cry. And then we got to mm-hmm. kind of move on. And and I, I love the fact that your 32-year-old friend has you in his life. And if I may offer for any listener who could relate, I would say um, curling up and crying is a valid initial response. Yes. And you want to talk more about your feelings? I'm here. Do you want to talk more about it? Um, and then I would say, are you open to feedback or suggestions? Because I have some thoughts. They may say no. Fine. Leave it at empathizing with the feelings. If they say yes, that's where you can say, you know, everybody um, is complicated and it's really helpful to try to understand where was she coming from. You know where you were coming from and what you wanted. Maybe she's coming from a completely different place and it's valid to ask her, like, hey, I didn't mean to upset you, but it's clear that I did. Can we talk? Robert, you're actually pointing to something I write about. In Chapter 7, start talking to strangers because humans are key to your survival. In the end of each chapter, as you know, I profile the stories of humans who are walking this adult life and making 
mistakes and screwing up and learning from it. And one of them was this young woman named Ashley who kept, whenever she had a disagreement with roommates, as a 20-something, she'd move out because she, you know, never knew how to have the tough conversation. She moved out time and time again. She's a professional living in houses with other people and moved out at the first sign of conflict. And as she tells me, finally, a third-party roommate said to her, hey, you've got a conflict with the roommate in charge. Instead of moving out, as I see it looks like you're doing, why don't you go talk to him? And she gave her some suggestions for how to do so, and Ashley did. And she became somebody who could deal with that discomfort of the initial conflict, take a deep breath, go and, you know, have that conversation, advocating for herself while also listening well to the other person expressing their needs. That is how to be an adult, and it takes practice. And Ashley came to terms with the fact that her mother had always swooped in and solved those difficulties in childhood, and she realized, oh, my God, I don't know how. But now she learned because somebody taught her. That's adulting. Yeah, that it is. And you, you, you know, you're talking about people, you know, meeting strangers and, and dealing with strangers. And it's, it's funny, I grew up um, not talking to strangers. <laughs> I'm, I'm not one, you know, that, that would just start up a conversation. You know, put, put me in a, a room and I'll be hold up the wall as, as best I can. Um, but, um, you know, I've learned, you know, to be able to, you know, to, to talk more freely and, and to kind of create conversation. Um, and, and I have a, a very good friend who is naturally that way, that, that he can talk to anybody and, and about anything and then sometimes talk to people I would, you know, I would kind of shy away from him. I mean, that dude is, you know, he's married. I wouldn't talk to him. You know, I mean, you know, but lo and behold, it's, it's usually a very positive, uh, you know, engaging conversation. So, you know, I, could, I had to learn the benefit of, you know, talking to strangers and not being afraid to yeah. just say hi and, you know, that kind of thing. So, I mean, but it is a, a very learned skill, I believe. I think it's a learned skill. Some of us do take to it naturally. You said you had a friend who who was that way. I'm that way. I came into this world as an extrovert. My mother will tell you the story of me as a two-year-old sitting in the little place in the grocery cart where a child sits, introducing myself to strangers. Hi, my name is Julie. That's the two-year-old I was. But many of us aren't that way. And if not, we do need to learn it. And here's why. The longitudinal research on human thriving gives us all kinds of information, including that our relationship at 50, the quality of our human relationship at 50 years old determines whether we'll live a long, healthy life. More so, they're more predictive of, you know, good relationships are more predictive of a long, healthy life than our cholesterol level being in a good place at, at 50 years of age. So this is sort of human relationships are medicinal. We need these interactions. Even the people we don't realize we even really know, like our barista at the coffee shop or the store clerk or, you know, the guy or the person at the front desk in our building, we pass them, we see them. They're called consequential strangers because even though we've never had them to our house maybe or we've gone to theirs, they matter to us. The fact that they came to work today makes our life 
better. And so to just be able to say, you know, hey, John, nice to see you. How's your day going? That's an act of kindness, stranger, that makes them feel better, but also makes you feel better. And anyone watching feels connected, like, hey, look, we're a human community of people who care about each other. That makes all of us feel good. So, you know, if this is why we do need to get better. If we can at eye contact, I know that's hard for people with social anxiety or if they're in the autism spectrum or even culturally, maybe you're not supposed to make eye contact. But if you can and can get better at it, just simple eye contact and a quick smile, not a, you know, ogling stare or a leering stare, but just quick eye contact and a smile is a way to say implicitly to another human, you exist, I see you, you matter. And that's good for all of us. Yeah, it is. And um, it's important um, to be authentic. <laughs> you, uh, you indicate that you know, young people should show up as themselves in order to create, you know, authentic connections. Right. Right. Yeah. And another way in which I'm trying to signal that, Robert, is this book is filled with the stories of people from all walks of life from myriad racial backgrounds across the gender spectrum, sexual orientation, the degree to which they're educated or not, the degree to which they've been here in this country a long time or are immigrants, how much money they have, um, you know, their mental health status, their learning differences. Um, I put the stories of so many people quite different from me into this book because I was literally trying to imagine every reader and I didn't want a single reader to feel like, oh, this book isn't for me. This book is about, well, she doesn't care about me. I do care about all of us. And that's why I chose to put the stories of um, many, many other people in this book to show these different walks of life. But you know what? They all have stuff in common. Everybody wants to feel good about their work. Everybody wants to be treated with dignity and kindness. Everybody wants to be able to make their way through their day, through their life, um, and, you know, to feel good about that life, we're all yearning for that. So it's, it's a book that shows the myriad differences, respects each individual, while showing at the same time, look how much we have in common. And frankly, in this American moment that is so troubled, as a black and biracial person um, myself, I have, you know, I have been on the, the side of difference. I have been otherized. I have been mistreated based on what people think of people who look like me. And this is me with deep empathy for all of us saying, come on, if we listen to each other's stories a little bit more thoughtfully, we'll discover that difference is beautiful and we have so much in common. Yeah, very, very much so. Um, so now, what, what do you, what is your opinion of the, um, younger people, um, Finding their book, you know, in one sense, I think, you know, I, I I look at today's environment and I think young people are just so, I mean, there's so much information available to them at the fingertips that um, trying, trying to find their own unique place in that can be daunting. Um, but um, what, what is your feeling about um, how young people can find their voice amongst all of the noise, you know, that is, you know, available to them. 
Well, Robert, at the top of the show, you used a really important word, which was authentic. And that would be my answer here. Authentic voices cut through the noise. People are looking for authenticity. They value authenticity. They don't want to see your perfect life. They want to understand when you've struggled or when you've really had a hard question you've grappled with or you've had a regret. You know, they want to see in you your own humanity because it makes the reader, the viewer, the follower feel less alone because we're all imperfect. And so I'm thinking instantly of three young people I admire, um, David Hogg and Emma Gonzalez out of the, the March for Your Lives movement, you know, that they were survivors of the Parkland school shooting, and mm-hmm. man, has their voice just shot onto the scene because <laughs> they refused mm-hmm. to tell anything but the truth of it. But also Greta Thunberg, who is a 16, 17-year-old who's taking on climate change, you know, people are like, what does she know? She's just a kid. I tell you what, she and every other kid who's currently a teenager knows this climate is in peril, this globe is in peril, and they're the ones who are supposed to live to 100 on a planet that we've messed up, right? So their clarity around what matters to them and their ability to wield technology for their benefit to disrupt things, to show up at things, to, uh, you know, to get the word out. Frankly, I think young people are finding their voice, and they have a lot of motivation uh, to make their voices heard because there's a lot that's broken and wrong right now. And um, I'm not saying these are the worst of times, but these are tough times across many different measures. And young people see it, and they're tired of the complacency of older generations. They're tired of people who've had, you know, 60 years to solve these problems and haven't managed to. They're like, hey, we're smart. We have good ideas. We're hardworking. You know, let us be part of this. And Gen Z is large, and they're going to be so impactful on our uh, on our American society. And, you know, I'm just trying to help them develop that confidence in who they are um, and in figuring out the work that's right for them and then learning how to be in relationship with other humans, develop a good character. I'm trying to just, you know, really help them fuel up, fine-tune, you know, all of the, the foundational things they need so that they can – not just thrive, not just survive, but lead and improve things and soar. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, uh, I am um, delightfully surprised at, at some of, you know, today's youth, you know, and their yeah. activism and their ability to, like, you know, David Hogue, I mean, he knew how to present his case like you said, authentically, but um, very effectively. You know, he called out what wasn't working and um, even suggested ways to, to make it better. So, yeah, that's, you know, that's encouraging. You know, when I look at today's yeah. world and see the mess, <laughs> you know, that so many things are going on, um, there is that, that part of our existence that is um, encouraging. You know, for us to be able to, you know, look what's coming up. Um, now, one of the things that, that we have, um, uh, you know what, let me go back. You mentioned character just a, a couple of seconds ago. So what is the connection between adults and characters? Well, um, 
humans are a social species, like everyone in the primate um, group of animals. We are very social. We depend upon each other for our own well-being, and we're also very motivated to help others in our human community. And um, so we have to get good at interacting with others if we're to get our own needs met and if we're to be able to assist others. And character is the measure of how you are with humans. Character, Robert, is what they say about you when you're not in the room. Character is what they Mm. talk about in your eulogy. You know, like, he was the richest man in the world but a jerk. Like, right, That they're talking (laughs) about your character, whereas I always felt seen around them. I always felt at ease. I felt loved. I felt cared about. It was just easy to be myself around that person, right? That's who we want to be. We want to be humans others feel drawn to, right? Because then Mm -hmm. we've got humans who we can have dinner with, but also who might jump on our bandwagon if we decided, you know what, I really want to go solve this problem over here and I need helpers. You know, if they feel safe and seen around you, they're going to say, count me in. You know, how can I help? And that's what we need. So, you know, good character, developing character requires a willingness to be humble about ourselves, not perfectionistic, but humble. Like, what can I work on? You know, I know, for example, as an extrovert, as I've already shared I am and as obvious to every listener, I, in conversation, need to make sure I'm making room for introverts. I need to let the silences emerge so that I'm not dominating and crowding out the introverts who need moments of silence uh, because those are the only open doors that will invite an introvert in, silence. So that's an example of a character issue I'm working on. And I mindfully, thoughtfully aware that other people are here at this dinner or in this backyard conversation or in this meeting. And am I making room for others or just so enamored of my own voice I can't shut up? So let me shut up now. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, as an introvert, <laughs> believe it or not, as an, as an introvert, um, you know, I I always appreciated silence, you know, in the sense that um, it gave me an opportunity to pipe up. <laughs> and, you know, I, I don't like interrupting people, you know, and, and if some, there's a conversation flowing, I usually would, you know, sit back and listen, you know, to what goes on and then just, you know, add comments if I needed to. But what I'm saying is, you know, I think that's a, a wonderful self-awareness for an extrovert to be able to make sure to allow that little bit of silence for, for the introverts. So. Well, um, we're down toward the end of the show um, here, Julie. So um, what, what can you say? I mean, right now there is a, um, for some younger folks, there's a, uh, an avoidance um, of the idea of being an adult. Um, what what would you say to those who maybe are a little reticent, you know, to um, take hold of that as uh, you know part of being, you know, the idea of being being happy to be an adult? I would say this. I would say, look, it is a little daunting and scary to fend for yourself. That's the basic tenet of adulting, funding, which is you look after your own body, your own belongings, your own business, your own deadlines, 
it's the basics. It's waking up every day and knowing absent significant disability, knowing, hey, it's on me to kind of get myself going. It is a little scary and daunting at first, but you'll get better at it. And what awaits you is the deliciousness that we feel when we know, hey, I'm in charge of myself. I can figure stuff out. I can make it happen. If things go wrong, I'll be okay. The opposite of adulting is childhood, where you're sort of looked after and cared for by others, which feels wonderfully soft and good and loving, but it is a place of psychological malaise because we need to know we are capable of doing for ourselves as a matter of our psychological wealth. So to be constantly in this childlike state of being looked after as a 20-something is to lead a life more likely to be filled with anxiety or depression because you're lacking the evidence that, no, 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 you are capable. You want that evidence. As Kelly Corrigan says, there's no greater buzz than solving your own problems. We want you to feel that buzz. It is delicious to be an adult. Come on in. Yes, you can. We're rooting for you. That's my message. There you go. And they got the tools in your book to be able to start putting that action. Well, Julie, I really want to thank you for your time today. This has really been great. And and um, it's funny, I every now and then, you know, I, I have uh, the guest picks a date, you know, when I go through uh, publicists and that kind of thing. So they pick the date. One thing I've noticed is that occasionally there are um, times when a topic will be, like there will be two or three shows with a topic, right, one after another after another. And... This particular one we have, just how to be an adult, and then I have another one on conscious parenting um, uh, the next show. So it's, it's interesting because it seems to me that, you know, there, there might be something in the air where that, that uh, you know, the idea of being an adult and, you know, and parenting and, and being consciously aware of one's parenting behaviors is, must be real important right now. Maybe because it's coming up to, to the summertime, <laughs> but but, uh, but well, it's, it's I really think, good. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of consciousness more than ever about the role parents can play to support kids in thriving versus the role we might unwittingly play that, that ends up undermining them somehow. So I'm really glad you're having that other guests on. And, you know, they're trying to help. I'm trying to help. I wrote this book, Your Turn, fundamentally to help. That's what I'm about, and I'm really grateful to you for the time on this show and to all your listeners who spent their, their time with us today. Well, thank you very much. This has really been a treat. And now if people want to get in touch with you, what would be the best way to do that? Awesome. Thanks for that. My website is kind of um, home-based. It's juliewithcotthames.com. You can learn about my books there and what I'm up to. I'm on social media everywhere at J. Lithcott Haynes. That's my first initial last name. And I've got an online blogging space that you can subscribe to for free. It's called Julie Pod. You can pop Julie Pod into your browser or go to jlithcotthaines.bulletin.com. That's where I write weekly in a short-form memoir, meaning uh, it's my lived experience. You're going to get my opinions, my fears, my worries, my efforts, my dreams. I'm trying to create a space and invite people to comment there. So we can be in dialogue with each other about, you know, this mucky, beautiful human existence of ours. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll be sure to be joining you on those social media platforms, and I look forward to following your journey. Thank you for your time today. 
Hey, Robert, thanks so much. Really appreciate you. And anyone who listened, if anything came up for you that really resonated, take that forward out of this conversation. It's a clue from you to you that we said something that's important to you. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much. Again, everyone, today my special guest has been Julie Haynes, and we've been talking about her new book, Your Turn, How to Be an Adult. And as she mentioned, you can find out more about that as well as her um, other activities, uh, the pod, Julie's pod, and, and um, also her other books um, by visiting her website, which is julieliscotthames.com, and that's, again, J-U-L-I-E-L-I-T-H-C-O-T-T-H-A-I-M-S.com. Again, um, you can always go to Amazon and, and type in your turn, how to be an adult, and you'll find it there as well. So, everyone, thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. And until we meet again, thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Remember, our show is available as a free podcast from Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Apple Podcasts, Blog Talk Radio, Amazon Music, and Audible. To follow our show on any of those platforms, visit ByteRadio.me and select the one you use most. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ByteRadioMe. Until we meet again, remember to be a bright light by bringing inspiration to your world and to the lives of those you touch.